Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Rich Carlgaard. Rich is the publisher emeritus of Forbes, a periodical that he's contributed to for more than two decades. He's the best-selling author of books like Late Bloomers, The Soft Edge, and Life 2.0. He speaks at conferences around the world and has one of the best networks of anyone in business. He's also my partner on the Forbes CIO Summit series. Our next conference is on October 27th in New York. If you're a CIO, we hope you can join us. Rich is a font of knowledge on numerous topics relevant to our audience, and I look forward to mining many of them with him today. Rich, welcome back to Technovation. It's always great to speak with you. Uh, it's great to see you, Peter, and and I can't wait for eight days from this recording, October 27th, when you and I will be hosting the Forbes CIO Next Conference in New York. That's going to be so great. Going to be great to see you. Going to be great to see the wonderful uh, group of CIOs that we've uh, we've assembled for that and the great content as well. It'll be a, be a great pleasure. Well, speaking of conferences, Rich, you are recently back from the Forbes Global Chief Executive Officer Conference in Singapore. And I know from a, a, a couple of catch-ups you and, you and I have had since, a lot of interesting things covered. I mean, what, what an interesting time to gather global chief executive officers to understand what's on their radar, what they're worried about or excited about. I wonder uh, if you could provide just a little bit of a thumbnail sketch of some of the interesting insights you garnered from that, uh, that your time at the conference. Well, sure. All hats off to the Forbes Asia team for putting on a conference. Uh, this is the 20th Forbes Global CEO Conference. We started it in 2001, but obviously we missed two years because of the pandemic. So it was great to be back in a world uh, where we're transcending vir virtual fist bumps and actually shaking hands and getting a read of the room and how people are really thinking about this, frankly, terribly scary economy right now. We had uh, really powerful people in the room. We had uh, over $500 billion of personal wealth in the room, 450 attendees, and they ranged from entrepreneurs to, you know, in particularly in Asia and Southeast Asia, there are a lot of conglomerate family-owned kinds of businesses where business might be in the hospitality industry and the aluminum extraction industry at the same time. So a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of family businesses, a lot of important people from government, from India, Indonesia, Singapore, Vietnam, and so on. And the world is at a crossroads. Let's just not mince words here. And I think the feeling in the room is that one path really leads to greater innovation, more prosperity, solving a lot of the world's big problems uh, in the near term to the longer term uh, challenges like climate change and you know how do we thread the needle where we have more energy, more affordable energy, more secure energy, while at the same time we're not heating up the planet. And uh, that's a great discussion, a lot of interesting talk there, but we have the near-term challenges as well. From an Asian perspective, the biggest near-term challenge is the worsening relationship between China and the U.S. If you're Southeast Asia, now, you know, this is there's a Singapore conference, so it was sort of more tilted towards Southeast Asian CEOs, although there were CEOs from the United States, from Europe, and um, in Northern Asian countries like Japan and Korea and so on, and India. Um, in fact, we had the world's second richest man, Gautam Andani, um, spoke on day two at the conference, and he's very bullish on India. But the near term, if you're you know, the Southeast Asian countries, ASEAN, you know, Singapore is the financial 
hub of ASEAN, you have Vietnam, Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, other countries, they add up to about twice the population of the EU. And um, they're highly dependent on trade. So when the two big economic players in the on the planet, the US and China, there's worsening relationships, this scares people in Southeast Asia because they want to be friends with both. They don't want to get into, <clears throat> they don't want to have to be forced to pick sides. They, they love the United States. They have accommodated themselves to China, even if there's not a lot of love there, and there's less love than there was five years ago. But th there, there, was, there was fear in the air. And what I heard was the, uh, the word resilience was said multiple times and inferred many more. That if you're a business leader in the world today, no matter where you're from, but particularly from Southeast Asia, you're going to really focus on resilience more than you are top line growth for the next two or three years. Short term challenges of inflation and what are central banks going to do and you know, supply chains that are still not fully functioning. What are you going to do? Now, an example of resilience where you're going to pay more for it but people are willing to pay more for it is multiple supply chains. The world spent 30 years perfecting one giant, hugely efficient supply chain with China at the hub. And that is no longer working. Nobody wants to put all their chips on China today, including countries that are friends with China. Uh, look at what Apple did by moving a bunch of manufacturing capability from China to Vietnam. So when you have multiple supply chains, you 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 pay for them. It it, it costs to have backup systems. So uh, so that's an example where people I think are willing to pay for resilience at the expense of top line growth. But at the end of the day, my God, what an opportunity for IT and CIOs. I mean, if we're going to have multiple supply chains, then using predictive analytics to know when to flip the switch from one supply chain to another. I think this is just going to be a huge opportunity for enterprise software and for, for far-minded CIOs. Yeah, really great insights across the board. Another sort of general question about your time at the conference in Singapore, Rich. It's always useful for us as Americans to get some distance from our home country, and especially with people of influence and insight, to understand kind of their impressions uh, of, of the US. And I wonder, as you, no doubt you were in conversations with people presenting their own thoughts, whether optimistic or or otherwise, uh, about uh, where the U.S. is headed. Any kind of uh, top line thoughts there in terms of what you were you were hearing? Well, to put it mildly, you know, the executives of Southeast Asia and the government officials uh, are really worried about the unforced errors that are happening both in the United States and in China. Now, after China's twentieth Party Congress last week, as we record this, so um, in the middle of October. Um, that where, where, where everybody was hoping for President Xi to signal more um, economic reform and openness, and he did quite the opposite. You know, that's an example of an unforced error. Zero COVID policy um, is an example of an unforced error. And in the United States, the examples of the unforced errors are, first of all, uh, creating the groundwork for inflation by the $2 trillion a post-COVID economic relief package, all the bickering that goes on uh, in the United States between the two parties, the seeming inability of the United States to look beyond six months. As uh, I, I was fortunate to be able to interview on stage um, a gentleman named Lawrence Wong, 
Lawrence Wong is the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore. He's the Minister of Finance also. And he's widely believed to be the next Prime Minister of Singapore, probably in around 2025. In fact, I asked him, and he said he would let us know, but but uh, he said it with a wink and a smile. So the current Prime Minister, Li Sheng Lun, has really um, you know, got his eye on this uh, Deputy Prime Minister Wong. And he described the U.S., he says, it's de- democracy, it's rambunctious, and he smiled. And um, uh, he, 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 I think everybody wishes both China and the U.S. would stop making these unforced errors. But I think on balance, and I say this with an, uh, you know, with an American bias, I think particularly given what's happened in China over the last two or three years and the turn inward, I think that people, for all of the flaws in the United States, people still look to us as a beacon. Um, Europe is really had Europe is in a deep recession headed for a possible depression this winter with you talk about unforced errors, Germany walking away from nuclear power. I mean, you know, how, how, how foolish was that? Uh, smart for France not to do it. But uh, Europe is just the bastion of unforced errors on economic policy. And they're going to pay for it mightily this winter. And, and we'll see for how long. Do you have a sense, Rich, as to how much the U.S. is going to be able to sort of resolve these issues independent of the crises that are that are happening in so many different places? I mean, obviously, this is a very connected world. And so uh, as much as uh, multinationals in the U.S. and the intertwined economies, our own with so many other countries where those those other countries have issues, there are going to be downstream ramifications to us. But there are, certain, there are also some pontificators that are suggesting that you know, uh, we may ha- we may catch a cold, whereas others will have the flu, so to say. I, I don't know any if you have any uh, gained any interesting insights, or just from your 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 own thinking, your own wanderings, and having dynamic conversations with people who are quite knowledgeable on this. If you have any any thoughts about it, yeah. Well, I think the big debate right now um, is in the United States, and one the whole world is paying attention to, is what our Federal Reserve is going to do. Now, um, inflation hawks will tell you that they. They have the Fed simply has to put its foot down in the way that Paul Volcker put his foot down in uh, the late 1970s and 19 early 80s. Paul Volcker was the Fed chairman appointed by Jimmy Carter, um, but uh, he he you know in the very late Carter administration and the early Reagan administration just kept hiking interest rates until um, until we had a very we had a mild recession in 1980 and then we had a really ugly recession in 1982, but it was blessedly short, a matter of small months. And then the fever broke and inflation broke and, and uh, the 80s and 90s became pretty good economic decades. Forgotten in that narrative, though, was that you inflation just isn't about monetary policy. I mean, it's also about supply and demand. And right now, there is a lot of demand in the world, which means the latent condition of the global economy is actually pretty good right now uh, if we don't kill it. There's a lot of demand out there. There are just supply shortages here and there and everywhere. And that's what's leading to price inflation. Price inflation is not the same as monetary inflation. You know, I think we do ourselves a disservice to, to kind of consider them both as inflation. And so the debate is whether the U.S. Federal Reserve should be trying to solve a supply price inflation in addition to the monetary inflation. There's a lot of evidence that the Fed has already done its work. The dollar is very strong. How many times have we seen a really strong dollar when 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 we have um, 
monetary inflation, not a lot. The other thing is, is that producer, uh, the producer inflation, we see the CPI, the consumer price index. The producer inflation actually peaked in May at around 12 to 15% in April and May, and now is running at about 5 to 6%. If you believe that producer inflation is a leading indicator of where consumer inflation is going to go, then the Fed has already done its work. And maybe, you know, we're going to get, we're for sure going to get a 0.75 rate hike in the next few days, probably early November after the election. So the Fed is not seen to be interfering in the midterm election. So probably <laughs> November 10th, the day after the election, we'll see another 0.75. Um, that'll take us to, you know, four, uh, you know, four or four and a quarter, something like that. Probably get one more in the spring. Um, uh, I hope that they pause after that. I hope they pause. I, I'm more of the view that uh, that the Fed should not be trying to solve a supply price inflation with monetary tools. Uh, if it if we have one more 0.75 in the first quarter of 2023, then we'll have five percent Fed funds rate. That's we can live with that. Um, you know, the, a lot of the 80s and 90s, you know, is that or even more. So I think that what, what allocators of capital, both in the investment world and in the corporate world, you know, should we invest in a big AI overhaul inside of our organization? They're looking for clarity. You know, even if the clarity is not exactly what they wanted, interest rates end up being higher than they wanted. At least if they have clarity, they can start allocating capital. So that that all make, makes me fairly, fairly uh, bullish. Uh, more bullish than most, I think, about uh, 2023. Add one more factor, and that's that I think that um, I will bet any viewer of yours $100 that a year from now the stock market will be 20% higher than it is on the day that this publishes uh, this wow. interview. The um, There's historical precedents for that. Um, since 1930, the third year of a president's term even if a president has two terms, the third year of of uh, term one and term two, in this case, will be uh, Biden's third year of his first term. Um, well, uh, the the stock market averages about a sixteen percent gain. In the other three years, it's six to seven percent. So we get our eight to nine percent by adding all that up. But the outlier is year three. And I think a lot of I think there's a lot of psychology going on in the economy right now, where we're, we're you know where we may be in danger of talking ourselves into a deeper recession than we're going to experience. And so I think the stock market uh, is uh, if it does go up, this historically is suggested, then I think that will have a positive um, influence on people's mood. I love that. I love that we'll have a chance to uh, to test that data and, and see if anyone takes you up on that bet. Do you, actually, I, it's, it's so curious. I'd, I'd never heard that uh, uh, that statistic before, that data before. Can you? What's part of the logic of the third? What, what what's so important? You're getting past the you know the 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 midterms, of course, which t- traditionally are very uh, poor for the incumbent, especially in their first uh, first term. What else beyond that is is sort of a catalyst for for increased growth in the stock market? Yeah, any decent economist would say this is a correlation, not causation. Yeah. The pool is way too small, and it's all a bunch of horse pucky. But uh, if you accept that there's some historical truth here, it probably does relate to the midterms. Yes, and it's simply that um, that uh, investors see clarity about the second half of the of the current administration. 
um, what can be done, what can't be done. Uh, markets famously like mixed governments, so generally a midterm election brings you closer to a mixed government, so not all one party gets everything. And so um, so that's, that's sort of the general logic of, behind it, although an economist would tell you to ignore it. But we're not, you know, <laughs> economists are totally rational and human beings are not totally rational. <laughs> well said. Very well said, Rich. Well, I want to return to uh, a topic we've already raised in brief and go into it in a little bit more depth and breadth for that matter. You talked about the role the CIOs are going to play uh, in what you have described. And, you know, I find it to be, this is a conversation you and I've had off the record so many times about uh, the remarkable growth of the role, a, a role that not so long ago was was almost definitively a support organization within most enterprises that in recent years has become among the most strategic and especially, if anything, amplified much more significantly through the course of the pandemic. Um, and so CIOs do have a role to play in what you have diagnosed as uh, the, the current issues and the potential future issues, as well as the pathway back towards kind of writing, writing uh, the economy, writing individual uh, companies along the way as well. I, I would actually maybe take a quick step back before we uh, pontificate about the roles that CIOs would play. Talk about you, a, a bit about your own relationship with uh, enterprise technology and your interest in it. I, you and I have talked about it at, at some length before, but I find it very interesting, you know, how you have developed your own kind of passion and interest and curiosity around enterprise technology. Well, first, it must be said um, that that most of what I know about CIOs and high-performing CIOs I've learned from you, from your practice at Meta Strategy, from your superb videos, uh, the Technovation videos. I hope this one doesn't ruin your hot streak uh, and, and uh, cause your, uh, people to complain about your quality control. But, uh, but I remember very early after getting to know you maybe 10 years ago and inviting you to participate and then lead the Orb CIO conferences, that how you delineated the world between CIOs and CIO pluses, mm -hmm. the latter being the ones who are in the big bucks, who have the real C-suite peer status with uh, all the other C-suite peers, who have the ear of the CEO, if, if, if not reporting to the C CEO directly, uh, who have FaceTime with the board of directors, if not being on the board of directors. And and so um, they truly are. Uh, they truly are uh, great leaders for the time that we live in. My interest in enterprise technology. I have this theory that that you get consumer technology when you're young, because you're playing with it all the time. So young people understand TikTok. Young people. It was young people who understood uh, Instagram. Young people uh, were the first to really embrace. The iPhone, uh, they were first to embrace iPhone apps. It's just the nature of things that when you're young, uh, you're actually playing with technology and you understand it better. Um, enterprise technology, I think, is better understood by um, more veterans of uh, in their career, sort of maybe mid-career and later career, because enterprise technology is really I kind of think of it, you know, as elements of consumer technology. It certainly obeys Moore's law, and all the things, the drivers that drive consumer technology, also apply to enterprise technology. But there's a, you know, it's consultative, and anything that's consultative, it, you know, begins to look more, you know, it looks like McKinsey or or your company, Meta Strategy, 
People are making huge purchases. Um, uh, you know, now and then um, there are developments in enterprise technology where uh, that sort of maybe drive it more toward the consumer end. There's certainly great leaps in user interfaces or maybe pricing models. Uh, you know, even now, uh, you know, after 20 years of subscription, replacing buying software for a contracted period of time, now it's being replaced yet again by, by hours uh, and minutes of usage time. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But, but anyway, I think that uh, I just watched my own evolution. I, I remember, this is an example how you understand technology when you're young in a way that maybe you're slower to understand when you're older, but then you understand organizational dynamics and things like that better when you're older. But I remember, remember I'm really dating myself here, but I remember the first time I saw the Apple Macintosh and it was, um, it was in a Macy's store in 1985. And it was the day after the 1980 uh, or in 84, it was the day after the 1984 Super Bowl in which Apple ran its famous, uh, you know, 1984 won't be 1984. And it was a subtle dig, not so subtle dig against IBM. And I, I just was really curious about this thing called the Macintosh. I'd read about the Lisa and um, I was a reader of computer magazines at the time, but, I, but now I had a chance to go look at one. What instantly struck me was that you could, you had, you could change type fonts on the screen. And there were maybe only six or eight type fonts, but wow. Now, this came at a time when there were only dot matrix printers. Laser printers had yet to be, you know, make it into the marketplace. That would take about a year for that to happen. When the Mac had no hard drive, um, when there were very just rudimentary uh, word processing programs, let alone some of the first uh, page layout programs like PageMaker and then later Quark Express. But somehow I had that I had that insight that this would become a platform of publishing that would be completely different and allow people to get into publishing magazines, things like that, at a much lower point of entry. Now, of course, the same thing happened in the late 90s with the web. And but I didn't see it as quickly as people who were younger than me at that time. And I wish I had, because the ecosystem of the web paid a lot more than the ecosystem of desktop publishing, but the desktop publishing allowed a friend of mine and I to start what became Silicon Valley's first business magazine, Upside, in 1989. Uh, we did a cover story on Kleiner Perkins, that Kleiner Perkins, the fabled venture capital firm, did not like because we said KP3, their third fund, was going to be below market returns, and indeed that was the case. And um, but we wouldn't have been able to do that if we didn't have the platform of desktop publishing to create a magazine on the cheap. So that allowed me not to have to go through, you know, in terms of my career at Forbes and so on in magazines. It allowed me to leapfrog to being a head editor right from the go because I was the founding editor and art director of, of Upside. And uh, Steve Forbes tried to buy Upside, and, and then he ended up hiring me instead. And right from the get-go, in my beginning of my career, I reported to Steve Forbes with the agenda of starting a magazine called Forbes ASAP. So yeah, journalism as a career path can really eat you up, is what I've observed.
because there are so many steps along the ladder toward becoming the head anything, the head of sales or the head editor or or, or whatever it is that, uh, you know, constantly, and the money is not good until the, the top rung, that um, a lot of people peel off and into PR and, and corporate communications and things like that. And then a lot of journalists simply become cynical over time. It's, a, it's an occupational hazard of journalism that you become, your skepticism leeches into cynicism because you've been told so many tall tales by so many PR people over the years that you start, you become a nihilist. So I was fortunate to avoid all of that, get hired at a high level. And the only reason that happened was because of desktop publishing and fiddling around at two in the morning with, with Quark Express and learning how to kern fonts and things like that. Learning how, studying great magazines like Sports Illustrated. You know, why were they so readable? Why, you know, wh what is the secret to writing great captions? What is the secret to pairing a headline in a subhead? You know, For Forbes in the old days was famous for that, a really short headline and then an explanatory subhead that made the whole package. Aha! Sports Illustrated, along with The Economist, is famous for the best caption writing in the world. And, you know, to, to actually be able to get in there and create a photo box and a caption box and to experiment writing captions, to me, it was like, I suppose it'd be like a gun nut, you know, being let loose at the DOD or something, you know? I mean, <laughs> to me, it was like uh, just a running enthusiast being let loose in the warehouse at Nike. You know, to me, it was just fantastic. That's really interesting. Did you, I, I'm curious, Rich, did you have an entrepreneurial streak in you? Had you been seeking an idea that was kind of uniquely yours that you could explore? Was it just a, the right circumstances? In fact, the technology and your experiences coming together to present itself in that way? Were you at a point in your career where you felt like you could take a risk? How, how did that come together? I wouldn't consider myself a primary entrepreneur. I certainly le had learned how to be self-sufficient and self-employed. I mean, before we created the magazine, I was making my living as a technical writer at a think tank in Palo Alto, and then also using my Mac to learn how to create promotional material and things like that. But that's self-employed. That's not really being an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is somebody who mobilizes resources to pursue an opportunity to grow. I think there's a big difference. A lot of people call themselves entrepreneurs who are self-employed. There's no dishonor being self-employed, but the entrepreneur is always looking for, for ways to grow and expand the business. So I wouldn't consider myself a primary entrepreneur. I have great uh, admiration for them, but I'm a great partner with a primary entrepreneur. You know, what I need is a promoter and a salesperson and a person who's far more extroverted than I am. And when I am paired with somebody like that and we both have a vision, then it works out pretty well. Uh, you know, my partner in creating Upside, a guy named Tony Perkins, after I joined Forbes, he created a, a magazine that did very well in the 90s called Red Herring. Earlier in the 80s, he and I created the, an organization called the Churchill Club. And I was kind of the, I don't know, the, uh, the, the intellectual end of that. And he was more of the promoter end of that. So um, I really think that uh, totally underestimated is the um, ability of people who aren't primary entrepreneurs, but who work great with with a primary entrepreneur or or teams of three or teams of four. I think you get founding teams of more than four, you know, and you get too unwieldy. 
But, you know, I'm very interested in this topic of, you know, solo entrepreneurs, pairs, trios, and quads, because sometimes, you know, the magic really comes in being what the other person is not. But the thing that you do is superior to what they could do on their own. Well, uh, talk a little bit about Rich. Your own. What is it? What do you, What do you think? Sort of the secrets to your success have been. Um, you talked a bit about what you bring to the table in terms of the intellectual weight and curiosity, and and uh, certainly a, a big work ethic. You obviously also are a great connector of people. You've got a great network. You think a little bit about who pairs well with whom and where value can be created among people who you know. Uh, I'm curious. You know, any other sort of reflections in terms of the secrets to your own success? Oh, well, I mean, gee, uh, you know, how do you even talk about the role of serendipity? When Upside went through a difficult financial period, it was 1990, it was a recession. And, um, and And that's why Forbes looked into buying us since Steve Forbes decided to hire me instead. Well, I could have said no to Steve Forbes. And I could have disastrously said, Yes, to uh, an, uh, an equally charismatic and accomplished figure named Bill Ziff, who took a liking to me. In fact, took me to a New York Knicks basketball game, flew me out first class. I'd never flown first class before from uh, San Francisco Bay Area to New York. Took me to a Knicks playoff game, you know, met the team, um, you know, all of that. And I would have been a disaster at Ziff, you know, because I really wasn't that exclusively interested in PCs and things like that. You know, I'm interested, I love technology, but I'm really interested in organizational health and the use of technology within organizations to build teams. Um, my, you know, I have kind of an athletic background. My dad was an athletic director, a very successful athletic director at the high school level. My brother, we like to say, followed him into the family business. He's the athletic director at Rice University. And, you know, I'm just profoundly interested in what build, how you build great sports franchises, for example. And so the thing that really intrigues me about business is, you know, how do you create these? How do entrepreneurs and teams create these winning organizations, particularly those that transcend different waves of technology, um, like the recently retired Fred Smith, the founder of, of FedEx, um, you know, so successfully did and so successfully applied technology. So, uh, you know, to me, it's all about putting it all together and creating great, durable cultures uh, that are resilient, um, that have moral foundation so so that employees won't hesitate pouring their best energies into the organization, that have great team construction, and then have great um, individual paths for development uh, you know, companies that are able to recruit, retain, and upskill people, and you put that together as a package, to me, that's really interesting. It's eternally interesting. All very interesting. The, the other thing that certainly is so clear in this conversation, Rich, is the breadth of your knowledge and areas of interest. And I, I wonder, what are some of the ways in which you stay informed? What does what your intellectual diet look like on a, on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis? Well, I always make sure that I have a really great, the latest, greatest big screen iPad that I put on a tripod on top of a couple of books. So it's at eye level. And that's replaced my normal, my morning newspaper reading, you know, and it has for the last 10 years. Uh, I probably spend two hours just lazily lingering um, over uh, breakfast, make my, you know, recently I've been trending more toward a whole food plant-based diet. So, you know, I make my oatmeal and 
flax seed and quinoa mush with, with raspberries and blackberries and maybe a sprinkling of uh, almond slices and some high protein plant milk, you know, and then I just linger um, over, uh, I go to, I like real clear politics. Uh, I like uh, real clear markets. I go to Axios, Politico, The Hill. I go to Wall Street Journal, Forbes, uh, Financial Times, The Economist. Um, there are a lot of great, uh, you know, the information I think has emerged as one of the better. Jessica Lesson has done a really good job building that. So I think it's, uh, to me, it's like the go-to Silicon Valley kind of magazine. You know, there are great newsletter writers like Ben Thompson. And, um, you know, after about two hours, um, then I'm ready to go take a nap. No, I'm ready. <laughs> I feel, I begin <laughs> to feel a little bit informed um, about things and then just begin to try to think of uh, connecting the dots. Now, the other thing that's really going to be, this is like way out there in the tall outfield grass. Due to all the travel that I that I do on for Forbes and do speaking events and moderating events. Now, you know, for two and a half years, there was not a lot of that. COVID is beginning to come back. And you well know, Peter, the life of a road warrior. What do you do when you're on a plane? I can't work. And I feel too guilty uh, watching movies unless maybe it's an international flight and I'll sneak in one. I read, but I read spy novels. I'm the biggest reader of spy novels that I know. Uh, maybe Steve Forbes is the only, he, he's a big fan of spy novels too. Spy novels is a genre. I, I feel like I'm a semi-expert in the genre. It's sort of like, uh, you know, we, we say that today is sort of the golden age of quality television, and it is. You, you compare television dramas to the, those of the 70s and 80s, and they're so much better technically produced, character nuance, plot complexities. You know, we thought Mission Impossible, or at least people my age, you were a tot then, but, you know, Mission Impossible was like cutting edge, you know, when it came out in the late 60s or early 70s. Um, and same thing has happened in spy and espionage novels. So if you read, uh, you know, uh, Ian Fleming's James Bond series, which started in 1953, went to 1964 or something like that, 65, you know, they were pretty cartoonish compared to what you get now. So I read those because I think you get a lot. You, you actually learn a lot about cybersecurity. You learn a lot about um, diplomacy, espionage. You, you, you read, learn a lot about competing factions and uh, the role of the economy and the role of business in that. And then you learn a lot about plot and narrative. And I really think that one of the superpowers you can have in business is to speak well and communicate well. I mean, those old classic skills still really will will cause a person to stand out. You know, you combine that with financial knowledge, and now you've got the trifecta. I think of things that beyond becoming an expert in your core category, you know, will propel you to a higher level in your career. But knowing narratives, I think that you get, and knowing how to write in a way that people will not drop what they're reading. If you think about what a spy novelist does, uh, nobody is forced to read a spy novel. They, they live and die on whether people keep turning the page. And so there's a lot to be learned about how to write in a way that keeps people turning the page. And only the fussiest of academics would say that you, you, you necessarily have to compromise what you're saying to resort to this cheap trickery 
of getting the reader to keep turning the pages, which is a total crock. You can write profoundly interesting, deep things, thoughtful things, and still have people turning the page. So, uh, so that's, uh, I don't know whether I'm just coming up with an excuse for the tens of thousands of dollars I've probably spent with Amazon over the years and my now my ninth Kindle, you know, they do wear out. And, um, <laughs> and, but, uh, but, but the, I, I just, I immensely enjoy that. I'll just give you the one example of um, where, where I think narrative is just a very useful way to think about that at the Forbes CIO Next Conference that you and I are doing on October 27th in New York. Look it up if you're interested. It's a hybrid event. One of our sponsors is Tableau, which is now owned by Salesforce. And I'm talking to this fascinating woman named Wendy Batchelter. Um, this is a, a recording that we're doing um, in the context of Tableau's sponsorship, so it's not on the a regular agenda. And she she's sort of exists. She's a senior vice president that really exists at the intersection of trust and data. Now you think about what's the narrative there? It's a three-part story. One is the value of trust in business. Now we've known you know, the value of trust in business for a long time. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, Stephen M.R. Covey wrote a book in 2006 called The Speed of Trust. You think about it in an organization or in an economy when you don't have trust, then you get lawyers and HR and, you know, everything becomes a complex negotiation. So you want to have trust. It's a really valuable thing, particularly in a, um, in a fog of war economy that, that we're in today. Then what is the value of data in trust? How can, and then there's a lot you can bring people together who maybe aren't, don't speak the same language. They're from different parts of the world. They're even, you know, sort of different backgrounds within a company. And when you data is a great lingua franca to unite people, to agree on what the issue is, what the possible solutions are, and how we might go forward. But then you have the act three, and that's implementing it. Our mutual friend, Tom Davenport, the, the great analytics expert, talks a lot about how a lot of people resist data analytics because it, they feel that it reduces their power. You know, the, the, a lot of this has to do with old style CEOs. You know, the, I have the great gut. You know, my gut instinct is, trumps all of your data. Well, well, let's see about that. Let's put it to a test. But but you do have those pockets of resistance. So trust is great. Um, data driven trust is even better. And then how do you implement it and how do you get buy in around it? And you see, that's a three part story. And I think just simply uh, that's kind of the thing that I think being more experienced person in business at my, you know, emeritus stage in my career at Forbes that I'm able to see with greater clarity than I did um, earlier uh, in my career when maybe I was a Quark Express whiz. Well, yeah, one of the things that, again, shines through in, in that response, as it has as a thread throughout this conversation, Rich, is the the breadth of your areas of curiosity. Long before we met, when I was an admirer of your work, I admired the fact that you didn't have a single lane that you chose or that that you were confined to, but rather sought connections uh, across a variety of different areas, from business to politics to, of course, different segments of the economy. Uh, you know how the world sort of fits together. Uh, in addition to thinking about the kind of you know the the, the ways in which culture and and and, and politics uh, the, 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 here, I mean, in a company setting, uh, can lead to either success or a lack thereof as well. 
what a what a uh, uh, an interesting journey you've been able to to find by virtue of your great knowledge, your great ecosystem, but very importantly, your great storytelling and your ability, uh, your great writing skills to not be confined to a certain place, but ra- rather be somebody who can wander to those areas that you find most interesting. Um, so, well, I, you know, I, I think as a, a piece of career advice and, you know, anytime you hear me talking about career advice, fact check <laughs> it and, um, you know, take it with a grain of salt and all the necessary things, but, but to manager or people who feel who've been told that they need to stay in their lane, don't take it too literally. I think what your boss is saying, maybe inartfully is that be the best swimmer in your lane. Um, that you can be, you know, you've got a lane, be the master of that lane, whatever that expertise is required. And when you go outside your lane, be a somebody who helps people swim their lanes better too. Don't be bossy. Don't be, you know, the critic looking from lane five over into lane six saying, you know, you need to improve the kick on your swim or you're not, you know, you're not putting your hand in the water, right? Nobody likes that kind of person. So I think I think bosses will shorthand that. But I think it's an inartful thing to do. And, you know, if you're an up-and-comer in business, master your lane and then figure out where you can be helpful in other lanes, starting with the lanes that are most adjacent to yours, where you've already built up your credibility for being good in your lane. And that's how I think you begin to build a sort of a broader uh, a broader set of tools that you can bring to your organization or if necessary that you can bring to your own entrepreneurial effort. Well, it's it's great advice and certainly advice that you have lived and one can see that through your your writing in in periodical form certainly at Forbes, your great books including Late Bloomers, The Soft Edge, Life 2.0. Well, well Peter, it must be said when I found myself uh, swimming in the CIO lane around 2010 or 2012 or whenever we started our CIO conference and it fell to me to get this thing running, I quickly discovered there was a much better main lane domain master in this fellow named Peter High. So it was my great fortune that you were available to come aboard and start helping us and building this uh, building this terrific franchise. Mm. And I think your whole CIO plus practice is a testament both to your domain and lane knowledge, but also, you know, the, the CIO plus, as you pointed out, is somebody who could substitute for the CFO on a quarterly earnings call or could substitute for the CEO in many situations. And in fact, at the Forbes CIO conference, we're going to be talking about CIOs. You're going to be leading a discussion of CIOs who've made it to the CEO level. So again, that's a applause to you, but and a pitch that um, uh, to anybody watching this, uh, check us out. It's a virtual event. If we can see you in person, that'd be great. If we see you virtually, that'd be great too. Yeah, well, that's really nicely said, and I, I thank you very much for your kind words. Um, yeah, I, I consider it a great honor that our paths crossed, uh, Rich and. I'm so pleased that uh, circumstances have allowed me to become a collaborator of sorts with you as well. Um, you, you, you really are, are so great at what you do, but also so kind and generous in the way you do it. So it, it's, I, I really feel very honored to, to call you a friend. Likewise, and we'll see you in New York. I'm looking forward to it. So hopefully some of the people who are watching now will, will join us as well, just as you say. Rich Cargard, thank you so much for, for joining me today. It's been a great conversation as always. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, congratulations on all you've done in your consulting career and with 
Technovation and these great video series. Well, thank you again.